0: Well, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. One last time, Daniel chapter 8. We spent three Sundays in this amazing book, in this amazing chapter. Uh, we've been diving in deep. We've been staring at prophecy. Nothing says Merry Christmas like Antiochus Epiphanes. We've been having a blast going through history. I learned last week that there are a lot more history nerds out there than I thought. So praise the Lord. We love some history. We love diving deep into the history of God's people through the intertestamental period. So we have one more Sunday in Daniel chapter 8, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll dive into Luke chapter 1 and 2, and then we will stare at Christmas on Christmas Day, and then we will do a little meditation on the new year, and then we'll dive back into Daniel chapter 9. We've been looking at prophecy over and over and over again, It began really in chapter seven as we started the prophetic section of Daniel. And for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we've been studying verse by verse from chapter one, verse one, all the way through now. And we're gonna end up going all the way through the book of Daniel. We've just been studying Daniel verse by verse, taking it uh, section by section, verse by verse, line by line. And we find ourselves in Daniel chapter eight. Daniel seven through 12 is the prophetic portion Uh, The beginning section, chapter 1 through 6, is the narrative. Those are the stories, the stories that most people are familiar with, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Daniel and the lion's and That's the opening. Now we're in the back half, which is prophetic. It's all about prophecy. And we've learned a lot about prophecy. We've learned that prophecy can be clearly understood. Even complex prophecies can be clearly understood. We've seen that prophetic um, uh, understanding of what's going on from the Old Testament to the New, they all sync up together to create one perfectly unified whole in the Bible. We've seen that prophecy of the future events impact us in the present. We've seen that prophecy, specifically fulfilled prophecy, is one of the greatest apologetics for the veracity of God and for the truthfulness of his word. We've seen that prophecy reveals God's sovereignty over even the smallest details in life. We've seen prophecy enables God's people to live faithfully in this world. Prophecy reminds us that the world's most powerful rulers are fragile and fleeting. Prophecy shows the loving character of our God. Prophecy points to Jesus' kingship over all things. And then we saw last week that God in his grace is sustaining his people by reminding them that he is in control to give his people assurance so that they can stand firm. He's preparing them for persecution by Telling them that there will be an end to give them a perspective so that they can persevere through the persecution, and by showing them the the glory that will soon take place after the suffering to give his people hope so that they can have peace. That's all just the last three Sundays we've been looking at prophecy. We've been looking at those aspects of what prophecy is, how it works, and what it produces in the lives of the hearers. And all that leads us to the end here in chapter 8, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. All of this talk about prophecy reminds me of a story about World War II. In late April 1942, there were 16 B-25 bombers under the command of Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, and they carried out a raid on Tokyo. And the raid didn't do much It was supposed to be horrific and and bomb the city and, and set it on fire. And it really didn't do much. It inflicted very little substantial property damage. And yet, even though there wasn't much that actually happened, the people of Tokyo went into a frenzied panic. They were terrified. The reason why is because their emperor had assured them through propaganda No one can touch us. We are safe. We are secure. And no one can touch us. And then when these 16 bombers flew over Tokyo dropping bombs, even though it didn't do much, it terrified the people in Tokyo because they then went back to their emperor's propaganda and thought, wait, he told us that no one could touch us. They came very close to touching us. They got over onto our land and they were terrified. But the God of the Bible does not operate like the emperor's war propaganda. The God of the Bible has clearly said, it's going to get tough. You're going to have pain. You're going to have suffering. You're going to have sorrow. John Calvin says it this way. If nothing had been predicted, the pious would have glided gently downward to despair in consequence of the heavy afflictions that were coming to them if these things had not been predicted. They would have... Uh, though themselves been deceived, they would have thought themselves deceived by splendid promises concerning their return. They they were gonna go back to their land in 70 AD and they thought, okay, when we get back there, we're gonna have peace, we're gonna have a kingdom. And God's telling them, you're gonna go back to your land, you're gonna have peace for a little while and then this madman's gonna show up and he's going to destroy you as a people. When they perceive, Calvin continues, everything occurring, According to exactly as had been foretold. This then became no slight solace in the midst of their woes. So in the midst of the suffering that they were going through. In the midst of Antiochus Epiphanes trying to snuff out the Jews. They're able to look and go. This is exactly what God said is going to happen. And he said we're going to persevere through it. He said he's going to protect us in it, through it. And get us out the other side. The fact that we know what awaits us makes all the difference in the world and how we interact with what's coming. But that begs the question, do we know what God has said? Do we understand it? Have we received it? We can intellectually grasp it, but have we been affected by it? That's the question that I believe these verses will tackle for us this morning. They will reveal to us an understanding of God's word such that when we actually grasp it, we will see the changes that it should make. How should understanding the word of God change us today? We'll see, we'll see three ways that understanding God's word, the glory of grasping God's word changes us today. Let's read together Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 through 27. Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who had the appearance of a man, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulai, and he called out and he said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of what has appeared. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was terrified. I fell on my face, but he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand upright. Then he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will happen at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns is the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that stood in its place are four kingdoms which will take their stand from his nation, although not with his power in the later portion of their reign, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will stand, insolent, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not on his own power. He will destroy to an astonishing degree. He will succeed and do his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his insight, he will cause deceit to succeed by his hand. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even stand against the prince of princes, but he will be broken without hands. And what had appeared about the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. But as for you, conceal the vision because it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I rose up again and did the king's work. But I was appalled at what had appeared. And there was none to make me understand it. Father, we thank you for these verses, the privilege that it is to open your word. What grace. You have spoken clearly. That's grace enough. But for you to preserve your word, to give it to us, that we would have it in our own language to be able to read and study. This is grace upon grace. You are so kind to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to be gracious to us here in this moment by opening our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you, Giving us understanding, we will not walk away with what we need to grasp, to understand, to know, to believe, and to live out. God, apart from you, this will be a useless exercise. If you do not work, if you do not act, if you do not open eyes, if you do not convict hearts, if you don't comfort and encourage and challenge So we come before you hopeful, expectant, dependent, needy. We ask that you would multiply your word into our hearts, that we would hear, live, obey according to it. And that you would drive us to an even greater hunger for you, a thirst for you and your righteousness, a longing to know you more, to love you more. And to live to glorify you. And make much of your amazing grace. Help us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. There are three different realities in this text. About what happens when we understand God's word. About what happens when we can see the glory. Of being gripped by the word of God. When we understand it. There are three amazing realities that take place. Number one. We have to first start with understanding God's word requires divine assistance. Understanding God's word requires divine assistance. This is in verse 15 all the way through verse 19. Verse 15, it happens while Daniel has seen this vision that he seeks to understand it. He doesn't just stop by saying, I got a vision from the Lord. I'm good. God has spoken to me. I'm good to go. No, I need to understand it or else him speaking to me has not profited me anything. Daniel needs divine assistance. Having the prophecy given him wasn't enough. He needs divine assistance to understand it. And God graciously provides an interpreter. There's a man standing next to him. An angel has the appearance of a man and and he hears a voice of a man between the banks of Uli. This is the voice of God speaking out saying, Gabriel, give this man understanding of what has appeared. Help him to know, make it clear to him, interpret the vision to him. God calls Gabriel to be the interpreter. Gabriel, just that word, that name means a strong man of God. It's the first angel to be named in the Bible. And um, there's only two angels to be named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is told to go to Daniel and to speak to Daniel and help him understand. So verse 17, he comes near to where he was standing. And when he shows up, he stands in front of his, in his presence. Daniel looks at him and he's terrified and he falls on his face. Why? Because he's in the presence of an angel. He's in the presence of the resounding glory of God shining forth from Gabriel. Similar to uh, all of the other accounts that we see of people running into contact with an angel. They're terrified and they're always told, hey, get up. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. We we joke a lot that the first thing that you probably have to learn in angel school is the phrase, do not be afraid, right? Because that's what you're going to say to every single person you come into contact with. So Gabriel says, son of man, don't Stay there on your face. I want to make you know and understand the vision. And I want you to know the vision of the appointed end, the end of verse 17, the vision that pertains to the time of the end. This isn't just the absolute end of the world, the end of things. This is the end of the prophecy. And I think that there's a near far relationship that we'll talk about as we go through this passage. Verse 18, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep. The word for a a coma. Sank into a deep sleep. This could be the theme verse of many churches, right? While the preacher's talking, they fell into a deep sleep. So I understand there's a hardship to hearing, but that's not why Daniel is slumbering here. That's not why he's going into this coma. He has been terrified of the vision. He's been terrified of what's in the vision. And now he's been terrified by an angel showing up and speaking to him. This poor guy has had a very traumatic day. And so when Gabriel starts speaking, he just falls on his face. And Gabriel touches him, helps him to stand up right, And then assures him, verse 19, behold, I'm going to let you know what will happen in the final period of the indignation. So the final period of this prophecy, when everything's getting really bad, I'm going to let you know how it's going to end. It uh, pertains to the appointed time of the end. Gabriel saying, I want you to know, I'm not going to keep it a secret. I'm going to make it known. This is what we need. If we are to understand God's word, we need divine assistance. If we're to understand this book, this book is a spiritual supernatural book and we cannot fully understand it on our own, with our own intellect. This is an infinite book and we are finite. This is a holy book and we are sinners. This is a book written by the Holy Spirit and we are not God. And therefore we need God's help. And here is the shocking reality. God gives Daniel an angel God gives us himself. God says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote these words. I'm going to give him to you so that you will know, perceive, and understand. That's why we pray every Lord's Day. Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I would behold wonderful things from your law. If God doesn't do that work to open our eyes, we won't see. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be open, would be able to see. We have closed eyes and they need to be opened by God to be given knowledge and interpretation and understanding. This is what we need. We need to come with a childlike dependence to the word, with hope, with wonder, with awe, expecting to be amazed. Knowing that the God who wrote this book resides in us to help us and give us understanding. Amazing reality that God in His grace doesn't just give us an angel, but gives us Himself. Number one, if we are to understand God's word, we need divine assistance. That leads to number two, understanding God's word prepares us for what is coming. Understanding God's word prepares us for what is coming. This is verses 20 through 26. And we've gone through these verses already because we read through them and we studied through them. We, we walked through the interpretation. We have seen the interpretation. So this is a little bit of review. Verse 20, the angel Gabriel says, the ram that you saw with the two horns, remember one was longer than the other because Persia was greater in power than the, the nation of Media. But these two horns, the ram and those two horns is the kings of Media and Persia. It's the Medo-Persian empire. And then there's the shaggy goat, verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. It's the kingdom of Greece, and it's the king of Greece. That large horn that's in between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great. So remember, horns are a representation of power. They're a representation of the king who's owning and ruling in that kingdom. And then there's a broken horn. The horn of Alexander breaks and then four jump into its place. They stand in its place. Those are the four kingdoms. Once Alexander the Great died 22 years later, there were four divisions of the Greek empire and there are four kings over those four divisions. But they don't have the same power. End of verse 22. Alexander the Great had way more power than all four of those combined. They don't have the same kind of power that Alexander had. And then in the later period of that reign, after the 22 years has transpired and into those four empires, there's going to be one king who will stand. And we we did a deep dive on this king last week, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is the word that he took to himself. He's Antiochus IV. And he took Epiphanes as a title because it means the image of God, the manifestation of God. Antiochus was saying, I am Zeus incarnate in this world. See me, worship me, bow down to me. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, similar sounding word, which just means crazy man, madman. He's Antiochus the crazy. And he's an awful human being. He brought more persecution upon the Jews than they'd ever experienced up until that point. And we studied these verses. We, we looked at the realities of what these verses looked like in the time period of Antiochus Epiphanes. The Bible describes in verse 23, insolent, skilled in intrigue. Uh, literally, insolent means strong of face. Uh, nothing's going to stand in his way. He's going to make Whatever he wants to happen, happen. Skilled in intrigue. That, that phrase literally means ambiguous in speech, able to move, very you know, politician esque, able to move around, get his way, whatever he wants. We see this even the way that he came to power. He usurped the throne from his nephew, the son of his older brother, Seleucius IV, and then immediately launches a campaign of ruthless conquest in the Near East. Verse 24, he's mighty. Antiochus had so much power, but not by his own power. He is empowered by someone else. That someone else is the devil empowering him, God allowing and ordaining, but the devil doing the work. He will destroy to an astonishing degree. Never before had the people of God been so brutally persecuted than when Antiochus Comes to power. That's why back in verse 13, the angel says, How long is this going to transpire? This is the cry of heaven on God's people's behalf. How long are they going to have to experience suffering and persecution? He will succeed and do his will. He can't be stopped. He will destroy the saints. He will destroy mighty men so the mighty men can't stop him. And the holy people will be killed. Antiochus had one main objective, and that was to force everyone to become Greek, the process of Hellenization. Alexander had done it to a little bit, but Antiochus Epiphanes is doing it, you know, 2.0 Hellenization process, make everyone demand that everyone become Greek. And so he's forcing the Jews to become Greek. They will not This is, as I said last week, this is when there's that dynamic shift in the Jewish understanding. What are we going to do? Are we going to bow the knee and surrender and compromise? Or are we going to stay loyal to Yahweh and not compromise? The people that said, we will not bow the knee, we will not compromise, they became the Pharisees. The people that said, okay, we'll compromise. We don't want to die. Uh, We'll just learn a new language. We'll pretend that your God's real. We don't really care. Those became the Sadducees. That's all in the intertestamental period of the Bible. And When you close the Old Testament, you don't know a people group called the Sadducees or the Pharisees. When you open the New Testament, you see these people groups. You've never seen them before. Where would they come from? Here's where they came from. He succeeds. He kills. Verse 25, through his insight, he will cause deceit to succeed by his hand. He's shrewd in the way that he deals with people. He magnifies himself in his heart. He calls himself God. He destroys many while they are at ease, many while they are in peace. This is exactly what happened in 167 B.C., he had sent a peace treaty to the Jewish people to say, I'm done attacking you. I won't bother you anymore. And then he waltzed into Jerusalem and slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people, according to 1 Maccabees 1.29. And again, just a reminder: 1 Maccabees apocryphal book, not holy scripture, not inspired scripture, but helpful historical understanding. Listen to what 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 29 says. The king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute. So this is Antiochus sending a man to grab tribute from Jerusalem. Hey, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to destroy you. Just give me the money that you owe. It was more than 20,000 soldiers. Deceitfully, he spoke words of peace to them. They believed him, but suddenly he fell upon the city And he did this on the Sabbath. He knew that they would be worshiping on the Sabbath. They wouldn't be doing anything. So he did this on the Sabbath. He dealt a severe blow, destroyed many people of Israel, plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and its surrounding walls, took captive the women and children and seized all of the livestock. That's when he uh, erected that desolating sacrilege on the altar with burning offering. He went into the temple. He erected a statue of Zeus, Zeus, And then he sacrificed a pig in the temple in Jerusalem. This is pretty much the worst thing that you could possibly do in a Jewish mindset. Worship the wrong God in the wrong way. He magnifies himself. He even opposes, end of verse 25, the prince of princes. God himself. But. And that's a very important but in this chapter. He's doing all these different things, but he will ultimately be broken without hands. His end will come quickly, swiftly, and without human agency. That's why the literal translation is without hands, without human hands. No human is going to be the one killing him, which is strange because you would expect a conquering general like this man to be killed in war, uh, an assassination plot attempt against him, something like that. That's going to get him. But no, that's not how it happens. Antiochus didn't die in battle. He didn't die by assassination. He died of some sort of bowel disease. You can read about the gory details of it in 2 Maccabees chapter 9, verses 5 through 28. I'll just read a couple portions of it. Antiochus thought to avenge upon the Jews the disgrace done unto him by those that made him flee. Therefore he commanded his chariot men to drive without ceasing and to dispatch the journey. But the judgment of God was now following him. For he had spoken proudly in this sort, that he would come to Jerusalem and make it a common burying place of the Jews. He wanted to slaughter all the Jews in Jerusalem, kill them all. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many strange inflictions." Yet, he did not in any way stop his insolence. So it's as if God's trying to get his attention and he puts the pedal to the metal and keeps going forward. He was more, even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews, giving orders to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along. And the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. So apparently he has some problem internally, intestinally, and then he falls and his his body is just being tortured and broken. Then the end of this chapter in 2 Maccabees chapter nine says this, quote, so then... Worms rose up out of the body of this wicked man while he lived in sorrow and pain. His flesh fell away, and the filthiness of his smell was unbearable to all of his army. It later says in another chapter that Antiochus himself could not, quote, abide his own smell. Lord, may that be true of my children, right? That they would not be able to abide their own smell and put on deodorant. Hasn't happened yet. This man is so wretchedly awful. It's as if his heart is being displayed through this disease, that worms are literally eating his body from the inside out. It finishes in 2 Maccabees 9, the man that thought before that he could reach to the stars of heaven. No man could endure to carry out for his intolerable stench. Therefore, the murderer and blasphemer, having suffered most grievously as he entreated other other men, died a miserable death in a strange country in the mountains. Just as God said, he's going to be killed, but not by human hands. God himself will afflict him. This is so reminiscent in the New Testament of what happened with Herod. You remember Herod Uh, in the book of Acts says uh, that he has a voice of a God and not a man. The people are saying that, but he doesn't tell them, stop, I'm not God. He continues to receive the praise as God and an angel strikes him in such a way where he receives worms inside of his body and he dies weeks later of the um, worms eating him from the inside out. The bottom line is if you stand toe to toe with God, God will win. And if you try to glorify yourself, It will not end gloriously. And he died, verse 26, exactly the time period that God had said. What appeared about the evenings and mornings, literally 2,300 days after the beginning of the terrible persecution, that's when this is going to end, and that's exactly when he died, just like God said. He says, it's true, it's going to happen, but for you, middle of verse 26, Daniel, conceal the vision. Um, There are different translations for that word conceal. It's not keep it secret. It's the word for preserve it. Make sure it's not taken away and burned. Make sure it's not taken away and, and done away with. Make sure you keep it, you hide it, not to try and keep it away from people, but to keep it safe so that when this time actually happens, they can see this and read this prophecy. Preserve it for the future. Antiochus is going to rule almost 400 years after Daniel. And so God is saying to Daniel, make sure that you preserve this. Maybe write a couple copies of this to make sure that this gets to my people so that when Antiochus is ruling and reigning, you will not be afraid. They will have the proof of what's going to happen. God prepares his people. Understanding God's word prepares us for the future. We looked at this in depth last Lord's day, but there's a a very interesting reality to these verses this Lord's day. God didn't just prepare his people in the past for Antiochus. God prepares you and me in the present for Antichrist. This is why I say that there's a... term that's used in theological circles, we would call it a near-far prophecy. A near-fulfillment and a far-fulfillment. There's a prophecy, one prophecy given, and that one prophecy that's given has a near-fulfillment of its prophetic elements, but then it also has a far-fulfillment. There's a near and a far element. The same is true here. Antiochus, the near-fulfillment, 400 years later, this will be literally fulfilled, but there's also a far-element. We saw this in Daniel chapter 7, a reference to the Antichrist. We're going to see this again in Daniel chapter 11. Just think about what we learned. If you remember, if you were here for our study in Revelation, think about what we learned about the Antichrist. And let's go back through these verses, the description of Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 23 through 26, and think of how they correlate together. Antiochus is a prototype of the Antichrist. Verse 23 Antiochus will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. He's a smooth talker. It's exactly what Revelation describes Antichrist to be. Somebody who gains political power by smooth talking. Verse 24, Antiochus is called mighty in power, but not by himself. He's energized by the devil. We know in the book of Revelation, Antichrist is energized by the devil himself, indwelt by the devil. Verse 24 Antiochus destroys to an extraordinary degree, an astonishing degree. Think about the book of Revelation. The Antichrist will destroy whole sections of the world's population. An astonishing degree of destruction. Verse 24, the Antiochus Epiphanes will destroy the people of God, the holy ones. Book of Revelation says that the Antichrist will go after God's people and destroy them. Verse 25 Antiochus Epiphanes magnifies himself. He is Epiphanes. He is the manifestation of Zeus in human form. Worship him. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. So much so that if you choose not to worship him and not to take the mark of the beast, you will be killed, hunted down and killed. Verse 25, Antiochus will destroy people while they are at ease. Revelation 6 tells us that the Antichrist will take over. He'll make a peace treaty with Israel. He will take over the world without loosening one arrow from his bow. That's what Revelation 6 describes. This bow just hanging on his shoulder. He hasn't even had to go to war to get all of the power that he's given. Command is just given to him and he makes a peace treaty. And for three and a half years, he quasi keeps that peace treaty. And then commits what's called the abomination of desolation, which Antiochus Epiphanes did in a near fulfillment with sacrificing the pig on the altar to Zeus in the middle of the Jewish temple. The Antichrist is going to do something like that in the latter days. He will turn on the Jews and slaughter them. Verse 25, Antiochus opposes the prince of princes The Antichrist tries to war against Jesus himself. You remember, he tries to imitate Jesus by taking that that fake death. He takes that fatal mark on himself and fakes a resurrection. Verse 25, Antiochus was destroyed not by human agency, but by God himself. The Antichrist will not be destroyed by human agency, but by Jesus himself. Verse 26, we were given the exact specification of the time period of Antiochus ruling and reigning, 2,300 days. We are given the exact specification of the time period of the Antichrist ruling and reigning, seven years. And we saw in both of those, it's lengthy, but it's limited. It's lengthy, but it's limited. So the near fulfillment of these verses is absolutely Antiochus Epiphanes. But there's a far fulfillment. Antichus is Antichrist 1.0. Antichrist is Antichus 2.0. History is filled with people who look like they're trying out for the role of Antichrist. They want to rob God of glory and worship. They want to destroy anybody who worships God. 1 John tells us there is going to be a big A Antichrist, but there are already many little A antichrists. They're everywhere. Just think about the history of the Jewish people. You have Antiochus Epiphanes. You have Haman trying to kill all of the Jews, Book of Esther. You have Hitler. You will have the Antichrist. It just looks like you have all these different prototypes for the Antichrist. Why are there so many different Antichrists? There's a lot of reasons to to answer that. There's a lot of very interesting um, answers for that question. Here's one that's just mind-boggling to me. And hopefully helpful to remind us the power that God has versus the power the devil has. One of the reasons why there are so many different types of antichrists. There are so many different people that look like antichrists. That look like it's going to be the guy. But then doesn't end up being the guy with the capital A antichrist. Is because the devil is not omniscient. The devil doesn't know everything. The devil's trying to get the antichrist right. And he failed with Antiochus. And he failed with Haman. The devil is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at one time to know who's the guy. Here's the guy. Here's how it's going to work. He's not all powerful. And therefore he's trying. And it seems like every attempt gets worse. But he has not succeeded in bringing about the big A, capital A Antichrist. He will one day. But brothers and sisters, he can't get this right. He can read the Bible and know what's going to happen, but he can't even make it happen because he's powerless to do it. He's just trying. Therefore, we have all these prototypes of the Antichrist. Here is yet another. This is a little a Antichrist. It's a piece of the devil's work. And boy, is Antiochus a piece of work. This guy is an awful man. But he will be destroyed and God's people will prevail. That's what the angel is telling Daniel. That's what God is telling us. Understanding God's word requires divine assistance to get it, to understand it, to grasp it. But once we do, understanding God's word prepares us for what's yet to come. That leads us to our final point this morning. Number three, and this is just verse 27. Understanding God's word leads to awe and action. Understanding God's word leads to awe And action. So understanding God's word requires divine assistance. Understanding God's word prepares us for what's yet to come. And finally, understanding God's word leads to something. If we get God's word, if we grasp his word, it will lead us to live differently with awe and with action. Verse 27, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Literally, it's a a Hebrew phrase that means to be finished and to come to your end. Uh, he's, uh, he says, I, I've got no more in the tank. I'm done. I'm done. He's appalled. Middle of that verse. He's appalled at what had appeared. He understands it. It says, there's no one to make me understand it. He understands what's going to happen. He just doesn't understand why it's going to happen. He's appalled as he sees the horrific nature of the persecution. He's appalled that his people are going to have to go through this. This reminds me of, Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, if you've seen that movie, uh, Tevye, Um, there's a a very, very horrific scene where um, Tevye, the dad, his daughter is being married and they're having an amazing Jewish celebration for the wedding. And in the middle of it, there's a a program where the soldiers come in and they they make a mockery. They say, we're in control. And they throw over the tables and and they desecrate everything that's going on. And there's just a a startling scene in, in that whole narrative where the camera is focused on Tevya's face and it just pulls back and all of the terrible action is happening around him with you know, glass, glasses being thrown off tables and overturned and people being thrown to the wayside and the camera just keeps backing off of Tevya's face and the whole point staring at his face is just him looking up to heaven just going, "Hi!" Hey, it was my daughter's wedding day we were doing this to honor you yahweh why here why now he doesn't even speak a word he just he looks to heaven and he says why that's what daniel's doing here he knows exactly what's going to happen that's not the understanding that he doesn't have he knows it he was taught it but in essence he's looking at god going why he's appalled at what's going to happen to his own people but even though he's exhausted sick and appalled, even though this has absolutely leveled his understanding of what's going to happen with his people. He doesn't stay there. He gets up and he keeps working. Middle of verse 27, then I rose up again and I did the king's work. That's why I say awe and action. If you understand the word of God, but it doesn't lead you to awe, you don't fully understand the word of God. But if you understand the word of God and it leads you to awe, but it doesn't lead you to act, then you don't fully understand it. We need both. St. Clair Ferguson says, quote, Daniel returned to the duties to which God called him. He didn't retire from the world in view of the evil days that were coming. He didn't go to the opposite extreme and live on a high visionary excitement. Instead, he just did his duty. He did what God called him to do. John Wesley is a great example of this, that um, hymn writer of old. He was stopped. He was writing to a preaching engagement. He was stopped by a stranger. And the stranger said, Mr. Wesley, what would you do if you knew that tomorrow you were going to die? What would you do if you knew tomorrow was your last day, Christ was going to come back, and it was going to be over? What would you do today? And John Wesley reached into the saddlebag uh, on his horse, took out his diary, and read out all of his engagements for the rest of the day. He said, I've got to go preach here. I've got to go visit a sick person. I've got to go talk to somebody. And he said, That's what I would do. This, dear sir, is what I would do. I would just keep living out my normal duty. I would keep on living out what God has called me to do today. John Wesley's knowledge of the Lord's future kingdom allowed him to live already for that kingdom. And that's exactly what Daniel's doing. Daniel is saying, I'm okay. I'm not okay because I know it's going to happen, but I'm okay to live out my duty today. I'm not going to let that affect me here in such a way where I'm paralyzed by fear. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, quote, Daniel's attitude illustrates an important biblical principle. In view of what the future holds, we must live holy lives now he caught glimpses of reality that would take place centuries later. Those events were shadows of the last conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world. One day, Christ will return and the Antichrist shall be broken without human hands, just as Antiochus was. We know this from the New Testament. So how should we then live now? Passage after passage gives us the same answer. Do the king's business. Walk in obedience. Live in holiness purify yourself as he himself is pure. We could say it this way. We need to live out our ordinary duty with extraordinary holiness. That's what we do. In light of prophetic events that are yet to come, we know that they're coming. We know times will get worse. In light of that, what should we do? Should we build our doomsday bunkers and wait? No. We should live out ordinary righteousness, ordinary duty, just do what God's called you to do and do it with extraordinary holiness. Live out your ordinary duty with extraordinary holiness. Paul says this to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Remember the believers in in Thessalonica thought uh, the Lord's return was quick. It was imminent. It was going to happen. And so they said, we don't need to do anything. We're just going to sit back on our lawn chairs and wait. Sell our businesses, sell our houses. We're fine. Jesus is coming back. And Paul says, No. He says, quote, we command and exhort you in the Lord Jesus work in a quiet fashion, eat your own bread, live ordinary lives of duty, keep on working. And then John says in first John chapter three, beloved, now we are the children of God, but it's not yet appeared what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's our hope. And then he says this, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's extraordinary holiness. So, ordinary duty with extraordinary holiness. That's what we do in light of prophecy. Understanding God's word, whether it's prophecy or not, understanding God's word will lead to awe and action. Just like Daniel. So, understanding God's word requires divine assistance. Understanding God's word prepares us for what is coming. And understanding God's word leads to awe and action. Action. These prophecies in chapter 8 have not shrunk back from declaring the reality that sin and evil and extraordinarily powerful uh, evil and wickedness is present in this world. But they also show us that God has good purposes in the midst of that evil. In the midst of the terror, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the suffering. God says, I will preserve you and I'm doing something that you couldn't possibly begin to imagine. Even in this account. There are so many realities of the good that God brought out of the pain, but let me just highlight one. Remember, Antiochus Epiphanes is kind of Alexander 2.0 when it comes to Hellenization. He's trying to make the entire world Greek. That means worship Greek gods. That means enjoy and live in the Greek culture. And that means read and write in Greek. And he forced that into the whole known world in such a way where Greek was the Language of the world. That was the most common language that nearly everybody knew because of this reign of terror. And that's why we have our New Testament in Greek. And that's why the gospel went so quickly into corners of the world that previously it never would have gone with that speed because there were different language barriers. But because of what God allowed to happen, he used the sinful wickedness of this crazy madman to bring about the working out of the new testament for you and for me to read for the gospel to go forth with power with speed with accuracy that's why galatians 4:4 4, 4 says when the fullness of time came the time wasn't ready until this had happened and the world had one known common language now we're ready for the gospel and jesus is born this prophecy is reminding us that evil will not ultimately win and we will ultimately be preserved. There's a pattern of this. Even a hundred years after Antiochus died, another madman named Herod the Great who would slaughter babies trying to kill Jesus, he would rise to power, torture his people, and yet God would preserve his people and preserve his son. Jesus didn't die. 33 years later, The devil himself would try to put an end to Jesus' life by brutalizing him on the cross at the hands of godless men. But God would preserve his son, not by sparing him death, but by raising him from the dead. Therefore, in light of everything that we've studied about our own future, the troubles that we know are coming and the glory that is ours after the troubles are all over. How should we then live today? In the middle of the circumstances, in the middle of the trials and the terror We wait on God, we put our trust in him, we exalt in him. Habakkuk chapter three, verses 17 through 18. Though everything around me fails and all I have is Jesus, I will still exalt in him because he's all I need. The reality is as we get to the end of Daniel chapter eight, the final word is not given by the ram. The final word is not given by the goat. The final word is not given by the horns of power. The final word is given by the precious lamb of God. And remember, this prophecy took place in 551 B.C. Remember, Daniel said in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. We know when that was. This prophecy took place 551 B.C. Over 500 years later, Gabriel was given another word to deliver to another person. Turn to Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Gabriel had told Daniel what was going to happen because he was told by God to do so. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, Gabriel is given another word to give. Over 500 years later, Gabriel would have the privilege to give another message. This time it wasn't to a man, but to a woman. This time, it's not a message of sorrow, but a message of salvation and deliverance. This time, it's not a message of how God's people would be destroyed, but rather how they would be delivered. This time, it's not a message of a madman sinfully ruling the world, but of a Messiah sinlessly saving the world. Just think about the glory and the joy that Gabriel would have had in reading these words and saying these words. To Mary, with the backdrop of what he had to say to Daniel, ringing in your mind and your heart, think of how much joy he would have had to say these things. Luke chapter one, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. He was of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, just, I cannot get over these words. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child will be called the son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. This is the sixth month for her who is called barren. Nothing is impossible with God. How much joy would Gabriel have had saying those words as opposed to the terrifying message that he had to give to Daniel? And Mary responds, behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. How do you think Gabriel departed? I just see him going, yes! And back up into heaven. Just, th- just think about God saying to, a- to Gabriel, I've got a message for you. Gabriel goes, what's, what's it this time? The, the, the first message that he gets in Luke is to go tell Zechariah. But before that, well, what's it this time? Seems to be giving out some troubling prophecies. Last time I talked to somebody was Daniel. Fell down on his face, couldn't even look at me, slept while I was talking to him. Great audience. This is amazing. Like, I I don't, is it going to be another one of those? And God says, I want you to announce salvation for the world. You had the awful task of announcing doom to Daniel. I'm going to give you the amazing task of announcing salvation to Mary. Brothers and sisters, We should have the same joy that I believe Gabriel had. We've been given divine assistance to understand, to receive the word, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. We have been prepared for the future, not just in a temporal sense of what's going to happen in human history as it ends, but in the eternal sense. We know what's going to happen and we're not terrified of death because we know after death we live forever with Christ. So therefore, we must respond with awe and action because of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, motivating us to exalt him as our heart's greatest treasure. Father, we thank you so much for... Daniel chapter 8, and how absolutely applicable it is to us today. Give us understanding, not just of that prophecy, but of the scriptures, of the gospel. Give us understanding of the glory of Christ. Give us understanding of what is yet to come, not just in a temporal sense, but an eternal sense that Jesus Christ has made a way for us sinners to be reconciled to the Father in such a way that we do not have to fear judgment or punishment for our sins. We do not have to fear death or hell because of our sins. We, We have only joy and hope and confident assurance of what is yet to come, all because of Christ. I pray that we would live lives filled with awe and action because of what you have told us today and every time we open your word. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our heart's greatest treasure. Amen.